0: 9-11 happened. Daddy. Oh, well, I'm gonna. Yeah. What's up, dude? There's this show I found. Yeah. And I don't know what it's called and I'm trying to watch it. Mm. I um, can't, I can't help you. You gotta figure it out. I don't know what it mean. Can't help you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I tried to tell him just pretend that I don't that I'm not here. You got to just watch TV and not come and talk to me. But
1: here it, we are. It lasted 27 minutes. That's not bad. Yeah,
0: that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, so, in-
1: welcome back to a Hoops Journey. Um, this is going to be a great episode. Corbin and I were talking a little bit about this gentleman. Uh, we'll call him a young man, I guess. Just his career and kind of where it's gone. And I feel like in in the province of British Columbia, maybe a guy that, for whatever reason, and not in a disrespectful way, but maybe we kind of forget about. And just the level of greatness that he achieved and how great a basketball player he was. Um, played Division I, played at the national team level for, you know, 12 years uh, won two high school championships played pro overseas and you know now is involved in trying to get his family going but still still giving back to the game here in our province and we are super thrilled to have uh, Kitsilano legend Levon Kendall on this evening how are you sir
0: I'm doing very well thanks for having me
1: no worries, man. You know, we we're just talking offline here and you're uh, you're on you got dad duty and you're renovating the house and you know, we're just in the start of kind of another sort of lockdown here. So, how have you and your family survived and what's been going on and what's been new and what have you kind of, you know, learned through through COVID as from yourself and and from, you know, just operating day to day?
0: Well, I've been fairly lucky. Uh, me and my partner um Aside from fewer social interactions, have actually, you know, kept the status quo for the most part. Obviously, I haven't been able to coach as much basketball as I was in the past, but I otherwise have a edible landscaping business called Foodscape that I that I started uh, after I retired, and that um, we were able to just keep working because we were outside and it was low risk, and I was still able to get access to all the supplies and stuff that I needed and actually had our best year so far for a number of reasons. One of which being uh, a lot of people sitting at home, staring at their yards and thinking about that project that they've been putting off for 10 years. So uh, for me, I I stayed pretty busy doing that. And then my, um, my girlfriend, the last Short a couple of years, we have a two-year-old daughter and she's been, um, she's been on more or less on mat leave, um, and works a flexible schedule. So we just kind of, you know, hunkered down with, with the family and I kept working and she was, you know, home with the kids and obviously some, some adjustments with not seeing as many people. And, um, you know, my son's six in kindergarten. So he wasn't able to in school so we had to you know try to be home a little bit more uh, for him and doing some of the school stuff and um, you know we created a bit of a bubble with my my parents and my sister and their kids that all live we all live within walking distance of each other and so it's been great in a lot of ways for us to to spend time with our immediate family and you know chip away at house projects herself and keep the business rolling and yeah it's been it's been good not too far off the norm so I feel fortunate to have a house and a yard and a a loving family I empathize with the uh single people living downtown in a condo it's got to be tough
1: yeah for sure yeah we uh we're in a townhouse now too and just like thankful for that yeah good good reflection thanks to that is the uh, little guy is he Jack to be back to school and or is he going back to school right now
0: He's actually not. Okay. We've sort of opted for the gradual entry, and uh, his mom and I are separated, so we're at a bit of odds on, on uh, right. risk tolerance and things like that, so <laughs> I uh, I would have sent him back, but... She's she wants to wait and see kind of how things play out. So he's still at home and doing the home learning, and he's in grade one. So I'm not too worried about it. And we we try to sit down each day and do a little bit, but it's not like I'm trying to teach him trigonometry or anything.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think uh, in 15 years he's not going to be like, Dad, when you held me back during the quarantine, I missed my math, you know. Yeah,
0: he'll be all Yeah right. Yeah, I, f- I feel bad for the, you know, socializing and the routine and stuff. Like he's definitely, you know, missing kids, but the, from a, you know, pure academic standpoint, it's whatever, not, yeah. not too big of a deal.
1: Well, let's just, you know, go back to you as a young fella. And what was life like for you? And and obviously, you know, you're you're a big man. So we'll get into that as we move forward with the show and talk about your career. But uh, what was your life like as a little guy? You know, what do you remember? And what sort of sport were you involved in? And, and were you, you know, I know, I know, you know, your father's a musician. So was that part of your life too? And talk about just kind of those early years and what that was like
0: for you. Yeah, I was, I feel incredibly blessed. I grew up in East Vancouver, kind of a couple blocks off a of Commercial Drive, um, sort of before this neighborhood was hip and gentrified, and it was <laughs> kind of a mix of hippies and, you know, <laughs> stuff, you know, prostitutes on the corner down the street, and, you know, it was a little rougher around the edges, but also a really, still a really great, uh, diverse neighborhood, which it still is in a lot of ways Um, just wasn't quite as sparkly and clean and (laughs) i had uh yeah really awesome supportive hippie parents that met tree planting and you know we had a had a house with a bunch of tenants in it and yeah i was sports wise i was kind of a odd anomaly where uh, nobody in my family is really athletic um, fairly active we always camped lots and you know i was kindergarten was riding my bike to school every day with my sisters and you know active but not athletic and i as far as i can remember was just super high energy and super obsessed with sports and was bouncing off the walls and i played baseball and soccer and basketball for a couple of years in elementary school and then i finally i dropped baseball when i was about Twelve, and then i was racing mountain bikes and snowboarding and skateboarding when i was you know 10 and i had a had a brief stint with music uh as a kid i had a band you know with some buddies in grade five six and seven and we rocked the (laughs) rocked the talent show at hastings elementary (laughs) and uh obviously grew up around music um you know my dad always playing the piano in the house and Uh, You know, grew up going to Doug and the Slugs shows when they were in town and, um, yeah, sort of put that on the back burner until I was 18 or 19 and off at university. But, yeah, I was kind of doing everything, climbing trees and getting into trouble and getting my sister to throw diving catches for me at the park until I was gassed and actually <laughs> fall asleep and, um, yeah super fortunate you know we weren't really well off or anything but pretty comfortable life and lots of great friends really great neighborhood. Um, you know i got tons of fun memories of just tromping around east van on our bikes and yeah getting getting into trouble and having fun playing tons of sports and being outside all the time and yeah yeah the way great. it should be the way it should be exactly yeah.
1: Yeah, good man. And then, so then, like, when did basketball start to become a big part of your life? I mean, I'm intrigued that, like, at a younger age, you were into sort of snowboarding, skiing, stuff like that, right? Which takes a lot of coordination. So, and you're, like I said, you're a big dude. So, when did hoops sort of start to get hooked into your life?
0: Grade five was the first real foray, and and again, one of those. I was just reflecting while I was making dinner here and <laughs> thinking about our call, and I I had a really great coach in elementary school and it was kind of like uh you know i forget that basketball movie but she was this blonde uh you know at the time was probably like in her 30s or something but super keen blonde she'd always wear like full pantsuit and high heels to all our games um but she was awesome, and she was totally hard nosed, and we just ate it up. Like as kids, you know, we had we would have practice at seven thirty before elementary school in grade five, and she had us running suicides and doing push ups and sit ups, and um, just kicking our ass. And we couldn't get enough. We had a really good team, and we would like travel around and beat all the other elementary school teams. And I was always tall, so that helped. Um, but we uh yeah, we just had like a a great hard nosed but and really supportive coach and you know, we were learning really basic give and go and you know, nothing fancy from the basketball end, but I I often look back at those moments and and also, you know, reminisce of how little of that's going on now where she's just yelling at us in the gym running suicides when we're ten. <laughs> And, uh, but we just loved it. It was like structure and we, we had this, you know, pretty eclectic group. I went to Hastings elementary school that had, I think out of the four or 500 kids at that school, there was 50 different nationalities when I was there, um, which has also, I think really helped just sort of shape my, you know, openness in life. And we had, you know, kids from every different walk of life on that team and we totally just bonded over, over hoops and hard work. And, um, that was kind of the beginning. And as I said, I played, you know, soccer at a really high level till 15 or 16 and won a silver medal with our, with the Vancouver select team when I was 15 and the nationals and, uh, sort of each, each sport kind of petered off as I got more serious and more, into basketball, and right around fifteen is when I I had to I finally dropped soccer and focused on on basketball. But
1: now, okay, so when you decided to go to high school, was kids was
0: it eight to twelve? Eight to twelve, and yeah, okay. uh, yeah, another kind of odd twist of fate in the journey, as it were, is my eldest sister, who is seven years older than I am. We were all in French immersion at Hastings. And when she graduated from Hastings Elementary, Kitsilano was the closest French immersion school um, at the time because Van Tech didn't have French immersion. So she went to Kitsilano to continue French immersion. Uh, Then my uh, middle sister, who's three years older than I am, didn't like any of her friends at uh, elementary school. So she decided to go to Kits because she could get in because it was... uh, you know, you're considered in district if you have a sibling there. So she went to Kits and was actually, you know, like the manager of the team and kept stats when they did their back-to-back, um, yep. first back-to-back at Kits in 96, 95, 96 with Sandy Bizarro and, you know, those guys. Yeah. Um, and the then, group. yeah, yeah. And so when I finished elementary school, I like really liked all my friends and I'm still friends with, the people I went to kindergarten with um but I knew they had a good basketball program and you know I was pretty good at basketball and I didn't really even think too hard about it uh and just decided to go to kits because my sister was there and the basketball program was good and all my elementary school friends went to Van Tech because they had French immersion there and uh yeah I just started totally fresh and was like a deer in the headlights going from being this kind of skater uh you know bowl cut bleached bowl cut skater kid um, <laughs> from East Van to Kitsilano where everyone was all you know pretty bougie and preppy and I was just like this tall you know gangly new kid <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> uh, ended up being a really amazing decision because I had obviously a really great team there and had an amazing coach again that was 6'9 and had played in Europe and, you know, totally understood the European game and was really able to help me out through my whole process. And even, you know, to this day, I'm still still friends with him. and
1: Would that be uh, a shout-out for Simon Dykstra?
0: Simon Dykstra, yeah. That was, uh, great. again, great one guy. of those really great guy and, yeah, really amazing coach, to this day one of still one of the best coaches i think i've had in my in my career just as far as the psychology and you know the the way he sort of handled the program and and us as as young men and yeah totally uh life changing to have him be able to sort of shepherd me and you know very similar game and similar body type and he you know he didn't play at a super high level overseas but he played in holland and you know had a couple of years over there so he uh you know he really helped me with my shot and balance and just you know how to be effective as a as a big in the european game and stuff was totally uh a uh, twist of fate in my favor
1: yeah the, you know we've learned that a lot in this podcast is just how so many different things like all the people that we've interviewed regardless of how far they've made it with basketball you know like they've all put the time in and worked at it but like just these kind of twists of fate like you're saying or these moments in time or these people that come into their lives and it's funny how it all works right like and those decisions that we make um you know because if you no knock on vantech if but if you end up going there who knows how that works out you go to kits and you got a guy like simon and we're in between the age of simon right so i'm older than oh, you yeah. simon's me so like I remember Simon as a player and I know he was a nice player a great player and you know he got to know my brother a little bit and things like that so Mm -hmm. you know it's it's funny how those mentors kind of come out and shape your life a little bit and um, I like that word shepherd that's a really good way to put it and I mean, <laughs> what were the what were the first couple of years like? Were, like, was your junior team strong as well? Because I obviously you know you back to back provincial champions, and we'll move into that. But was it just a group of guys right off the bat, or how did that
0: look? And it uh, we were really good from the beginning. Um, and I I'm trying to remember what happened in grade eight. Like we were definitely, and I can I don't even know if they if they were doing provincial type things in grade eight and grade nine. But I don't remember losing much um, and having a good team. And essentially what happened was uh, Simon was our coach in grade nine and we had a good group of kids. And he, you know, was was getting good stuff out of us and kind of had his system. And so we did really well in grade nine. The grade 10 coach just said, well, hey, you like you stick with your group of guys. And we totally dominated in grade 10. We actually won the provincial tournament, like the junior provincials in grade 10 as well. Yeah, I was wondering that. Yeah, and I don't think we lost, you know, more than a couple games. Like, we were pretty stacked, Um, just had had a good group. And and one of the things I remember about Simon, too, is that – again, is so valuable now that I'm getting into coaching in these ages is is we just drilled a lot of the same stuff over and over. Um, like our warm up was a, you know, we called it the daily dozen and it was 12 fundamental moves from the wing on both sides and we do it from both sides in the middle and it was like really simple, just like sweep through layup, jab step, you know, go left, jab step, shoot, whatever. We had a whole series. And we were doing that from like grade nine on. And that was before like every practice, before every game. Um, And so we had a lot of guys that, that developed that, you know, weren't necessarily great basketball players, but just through that repetition, through the fundamentals, and then obviously, you know, his coaching with with their X's and O's, and and we got again, we got lucky. We had some transfers that came in as we got older, and and just had had good players. Um, but yeah, we we won the provincials in grade ten, and then uh, Randy Coutts, uh, to his credit, sort of let Simon continue up when we you know my class moved into grade grade 11 he was you know sort of stepped aside as the assistant coach and let simon you know coach that team for our back to back championships as well and and the grade above above me I also had a pretty solid team they weren't quite as successful in grade 10 but in grade 11 but we had a, you know, they had a, a, a good group of a guys that really bought in and, and were really talented. So when we had us in grade 11 after winning the Provincials and, you know, another four or five really good seniors, um, yeah, we, we just kept kept it rolling. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you guys were stacked.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy the AgriDome?
0: I love the AgriDome. Yeah. I um yeah that was a that was a totally a special experience. I went and watched um, last year was probably the first time that I went to the or was for sure the first time I went to the provincial championship out at the Langley Event Center. And uh, you know it was good. Like it's a nice facility and it's all set up. And we're obviously a bit city biased, but it was pretty cool to to be in the kind of dingy, hay smelling agrodome <laughs> with. <laughs> you know and great fans and actually be able to sell the place out have a packed you know a packed arena in the city was was pretty cool it's kind of a nice size where it's not too cavernous and you know you get at least for the the vancouver schools could get a good turnout it was an easy commute for even for the kids fan base and stuff for them to come out and and support the team and for me that that's like you know my stomping grounds i grew up not just down the road, so I obviously had lots of lots of family and friends out, and yeah, it was definitely like a yeah, you know, a lot of cool uh, things going on in the agrodome, and pretty special to be able to to win it there.
1: That's good. I, lo- I love that you brought up Simon because I, you know, Corbs is sitting here messaging me on the side, and he know, you know, he's heard of Simon and stuff, and I think right. Simon's just like a guy who goes about his business, right? He's, you know, he he's done so much in the game, but you wouldn't really know because he's just, you know, he's a quiet guy, right? And, you know, you mm-hmm. bump into him on the street and, like, I have the greatest conversations when I see him and he's always so pleasant and, how are you? But, you know, he's not, he's not flashy, he's not loud, you know, he did his thing at Langara. Like, his coaching resume might be better than his playing resume, but how many people actually know that, you know?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, and I, I'm, you know, not super tapped into the BC basketball community but it certainly seems like he gets overlooked a little bit just in you know mentions and because he doesn't have that sort of Mm -hmm. uh flamboyant personality or isn't like super intense on the sidelines or whatever but i i people are often surprised they ask me you know who was the best coach that you've had and you know i've played for a bunch of really good coaches and super high level and i always you know refer back to him you know regardless of the level even though it was high school basketball just from my you know his understanding of the the psychology piece and you know i don't even really remember the x's and o's part which he, you know i i know he was good at and we had good plays but it was, it was more just the uh yeah just the way that he he was approachable but had enough fear that we all respected and listened to him and he really maintained that balance well which to me is the hardest part of coaching is is you know having kids buy in and be able to play for you or, or men for that matter uh but still maintaining enough of an edge that everyone respects your opinion and listens to you wholeheartedly and you know as i said i, I um a little bit less so now but as I, when I went to Pittsburgh, I, every time I come back in the summer, I would still, I would meet up with Simon and have lunch and he'd be, he'd send me emails and watch games and, you know, give me tips and, you know, continued mentoring me and taught me, you know, told me some stuff that some of his tricks when uh, we were playing where we'd be running suicides and, you know, okay, everyone's got to touch the line. If, you know, you don't make it in 30 seconds and you're running again. And he's, he said, oh yeah, you guys would all touch the line, but I would say somebody missed it. And then he would know who was the quitter and who was, you know, it was like the easiest personality test and who he could count on. And I was like, oh, you bastard, but that's genius. You know, it was (laughs) kind of like those types of things that, that I, uh, you know, he was like, oh, you just, you knew right away the guys that were going to quit on you because they'd be looking around and pointing fingers and the guys that were, you know, going to be in the trenches would just get back on the line and keep running, you know, or like yeah, encourage their teammates or whatever you know stuff like that 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 i yeah. learned after the fact um you know just from continuing our our friendship and stuff and yeah like i said the, the repetition piece and just how he had us drilling you know really basic stuff that totally you know turned mediocre players into good players and good players into better players and mm-hmm. just gave us a really strong foundation and, and he totally had that that psychology piece dialed where we all, we were all scared of him, uh, but <laughs> he was also like friendly and approachable and you could you right. know, talk to him yeah, if, if you he... need be. And yeah, it was like a, you know, a healthy, healthy fear or edge, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you got a guy like Chris Porteous on your team, you need a little bit of fear
0: factor from the coach, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, especially with <laughs> just high school, high school kids in general, you know, you got to keep them on their toes. If you're too nice, they give them a mile, they take a, you know, give them an inch to take a mile. So, Yeah. That was that was great. And he's obviously like, you know, went to Churchill and took a program that didn't really exist and you know, turned them into a, a championship team. And there's not a lot of a lot of coaches in high school basketball that have done that. Good lad clothing is the most
1: unique shopping experience in the lower mainland. The owner Shane Meyer has worked hard to create a personal experience, offering clothing, specialized coffee, haircuts, and beard trims located in Lower Lonsdale at 221 West Esplanade in North Vancouver, seconds from the Seabus. If you are unable to make it to the store, you can shop online at shopthefoldgroup.com. And oh yeah, in store, if you mention a hoops journey, you'll receive 15% off anything storewide. We want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Parkside Brewery. Located in the heart of Port Moody on Brewers Row, Parkside offers an amazing atmosphere with one of the best summer patios around. If you can't make it to the brewery located at 2731 Murray Street, then hit any government retail store and try the Dawn Pilsner, the Dusk Pale Ale, or my favourite, the Dreamboat Hazy IPA. A Hoops Journey promises that the beer at Parkside is much, much, Much better than the owner, Sam Payne's streaky jump shot. We hope to see you Parkside. During those years, so, you know, obviously by grade 11, you're full on basketball. You're loving it. You know, you're starting to think about the next level, maybe even talking to Simon a little bit about it. But when for you does the recruiting process really start? You know, I mean you ended up at a place like Pittsburgh, so I'm guessing you had lots of interest or, you know, a, a little bit of uh steady interest and when did you start to think about, you know what? I I kind of want to pursue this at the next level like kind of big time cuz Pitt's big time, let's not fool ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it all uh, you know, it all kind of just happened organically and my first uh the, my first exposure really was playing with the provincial team before grade 11. We went down to the States to the Adidas big time tournament. And mm-hmm. there was, this was sort of pre-club teams and AU. And so the provincial team was kind of it. Like that was yeah. what you did in the summer. Who um, was coaching you? Oh, you that is a good question. And if they're listening, they might get mad. I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> My memory is not great for, uh, players i played against and coaches i had and you know i mean coaches is a little a little different but that was quite a while (laughs) ago (laughs) but we um we went down to the adidas big time tournament and we won our first couple games or sort of unexpectedly we had a good squad and i was playing well and it's the way that tournament worked at the time was kind of like an ncaa style thing so it's an elimination and we kept we kept it advancing and you know the first game there's no coaches at the second game there's a couple and then you know i can't remember how many games we played down there but there's there started to be a little bit of buzz about me because they're like well who's this you know six eight canadian kid who's who's playing well and then of course as you get further into you get playing against bigger aau teams so there's higher level um mm-hmm. recruits on those teams and so you know by their by our last game there's something like 50 D1 coaches at the game and it's like pretty intense first experience going down to the states and uh just playing at a super high level and and kind of getting a sense of the commitment and buzz and everything around basketball and so after that trip then it was kind of like all of a sudden I just was getting a flood of letters and calls and it was all primarily mid major like Boise State, Idaho State, you know University of Portland uh, eastern Washington, you know, like kind of mid level Santa Clara Utah State was by far the um the highest ranked school that was recruiting me kind of all through grade eleven mm-hmm. um and then my other sort of odd twist of fate was I was out um doing the Nike all Canada camp and uh the assistant coach at pittsburgh Jamie Dixon or he was the assistant at the time uh nine eleven happened, so all flights grounded in the states, and he was supposed to you know go to New York or somewhere to to for a recruiting trip that weekend and I was in toronto and he said oh, well the only thing i can do is rent a car and drive up to nike all canada camp and you know and brown was there and there's where he's like ah just go take a look and spend a <clears throat> spend half a day just so that the head coach isn't on my ass about not recruiting <laughs> and so he drove up uh because he could do that he couldn't get on any flights and um, so that was sort of like plan d uh and so he drove up to toronto and uh was going to stay half a day and then he saw me and he ended up staying the rest of the three days and and scouted me that trip and then they uh, kind of jumped on the recruiting train and I didn't know anything about him I remember Jay Triano was really excited because they he knew Jamie and they you know Jay Triano was like, Hey, man, you know, by the way, this uh, University of Pittsburgh is is interested. And oh man, they were all pumped. And I was kind of like, Oh, what the hell are they? I never heard of that. <laughs> My uh, Simon as well was like, Oh, wow, that's yeah, we got to, you know, you should look into that. That's really great. That's big time, you know. And then I kind of get on dial up internet at the time and start um, <laughs> checking out. You know who what the hell, who the hell's the University of Pittsburgh and oh big East oh okay, Georgetown, yeah, I know them oh right, St John's, yeah, Yukon, okay, I heard of those schools like Syracuse, yeah, okay, <laughs> and then it was kind of like, oh shit, yeah, these guys are pretty serious, and then that it was really only like about a three week recruiting process i went i did went and did a visit with my dad, um talked to them, and then I signed, you know so that was beginning of september, and i signed I signed my letter of intent in November whenever the signing period was um so I had that all shored up before my senior season really kicked off, which was really nice, like no pressure. Yeah, and, yeah, just a nice way to go through it and yeah, get it off your plate, right? Yeah, I was locked in, so I wasn't worried about you know really anything. I was, I was just, uh, I knew I was going there, and yeah, so it was another kind of happenstance thing uh that, that worked out well
1: <laughs> yeah funny how life works man it's it's a trip and then we're doing some research on you right we know your story but just going a little bit deeper and then you look at like you know jamie dixon was under ben Howland, and ben Howland was at northern arizona who coached mavis right so it's like mm-hmm. just kind of all the weird layers that you just don't even really realize that happen until you kind of look back on it all right so yeah funny
0: the funny <laughs> yeah. the other piece of that there was a uh, one of the assistants, Chris, I can't remember his last name, but he was an assistant at Northern Arizona and he had seen me play and was telling Jamie Dixon, like, Oh, you got to check out this guy in Canada. Cause he also like he knew Mavis and sort of, he was one of the few guys that had a bit of a line on Canadian players because again, this was before any social media or, you know, there weren't too many Canadians that were going South. It was kind of a rare thing. So he was bugging jamie about oh you gotta go check out this you know this forward in in pc and he was like yeah yeah okay whatever whatever (laughs) and then uh ended up you know stumbling across me kind of was like oh shit you're right you know this guy is pretty good and and i you know i called mavis actually and and talked to him about ben Howland. and uh and i didn't know mavis but sort of got same through jay triano he connected me with him and Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, a this nervous seventeen year old calling Mavis up to to get the lowdown on Ben Howland and just kind of see what kind of coach he was and get a bit of a scouting report on him. And yeah, yeah, the uh, all the links
1: and then obviously, you know you have a you know your freshman sophomore year like anyone you know it's you're in a huge conference right very physical conference right a physical brand of basketball from what i can remember and i remember watching a few year games and you know by your junior and senior year you found a nice little niche and but talk about that freshman year for you and what that was like kind of just you know like you say growing up skater kid to basketball kid east van and then all of a sudden you're in friggin the university of
0: pittsburgh right like of all places it was man total total deer in the headlights and uh again i mean in hindsight one of those formative personality things where i was you know growing up was always quite a shy kid once i got to know you and with my friends i was totally outgoing and keen but i was you know i, I don't think so uncommon for a tall kid to, i would sort of kind of hide out and and be pretty quiet and going to kits for the first time at 12 13 and then being all of a sudden being the new kid and having to make friends and being really uh, you know uncomfortable and shy and out of totally out of my comfort zone um and then going to pittsburgh was like level that up times 10 (laughs) and i was uh, you know this like 200 pound pimply white kid from bc and uh just get dropped off on campus and i'm like one of two or three white guys on the team all these guys from the bronx and new york and my roommate was like a pretty rough dude from buffalo and i was kind of like just rolling with him and his buddies because he had some friends and in the dorm and you know same kind of thing just trying to like get my get my footing and figure out what the hell was going on and i was (laughs) I mean, speaking of physical conference, I, all the forwards, the lightest forward when I got there was 245. Oh. Um, and I was 200 pounds, 6'9", 200 pounds. Um, and I think our heaviest guy was like 270, 275, one of the five men. And, you know, I played like the 5'4", so I wasn't like I could only guard one of them or the four men or whatever. And mm. uh, they were all just tanks. And I was just like, holy shit, what am I doing here? like <laughs> You know, and, and I got uh, got redshirted the first year, which was totally the right decision, just for you know, especially the style. And I think, you know, now looking back, I, I might have had a different career path had I been at a at a smaller mid major and mm-hmm. had a bit more responsibility offensively. And you know, I I think, uh, and I've had people tell me this, you know, in the past, where I was like, if if I was kind of the man on a team that was you know a mid high mid major team then i might you know might have had a different different path and gotten drafted and got different looks but i ended up just whatever i was at pittsburgh and it was a super physical bruiser league in the big east and you know really high level and it you know it took me a while to sort of get my footing and and i you know I, i just sort of took on a bit of a jack of all trades role there and you know didn't have quite as much confidence as I did in high school and whatever I sort of picked my spots and was comfortable on the court but certainly wasn't you know calling my own number or anything like that um which you know sort of changed my did you ever think about leaving I no, I never thought about leaving I don't yeah. uh that's not uh not really my nature to bounce around like that I think uh, you know once yeah. I committed to something I was just like I'm here and I got to put in the time and you know um it was great i mean pretty hard to trade off like playing at madison square garden and playing in the big east and all the you know players that i got to play against there and playing in front of thirty three thousand people at Syrac- syracuse in the dome and playing against jeff green and roy hibbard like in the big east finals at msg like you know it's pretty pretty crazy trip on the one hand and you know who Freaking knows yeah, pretty pretty cool. Um and I had a great time and, you know, made some good friends there and again, just sort of all that stuff. Totally formative to spend three years on the bench and I, I tell kids that all the time that I think they're hot shit in town. And I say, Look, man, I was probably the best big guy in Canada or one of the best and then I went to the States and sat on the bench for three years. <laughs> so <laughs> you gotta you gotta have some, you know, perspective and some ability to persevere to if you want to make it, you know, don't don't think that you're good because you're the best kid in Vancouver, or BC. Like it's going to be a rude awakening when you <laughs> get elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important. I think that's why it's great that you're giving back to the game because you know some, some kids that need to hear that stuff, right? And no mm-hmm. matter what. level make it to it's just like sometimes we're without trying to sound too old you know we're in a bit of a generation where kids want things to come to them a lot right and maybe we were just as guilty when we were younger who knows but mm-hmm. you know, having someone like yourself who's sort of been there done that to, to give that reflection I think is huge um, especially for kids that have aspirations from from a big man standpoint I know you've done a lot of big man stuff with you know Kyle and, and Ransford and, and mm-hmm. working with bigger kids in our province and having them think about those things so that's cool man and and also just that inside of you where did that come from is that a family thing where you became loyal and wanted to work through it is that just how you learned growing up in East Van or was it something that you learned on your own i'm just just curious on that and how you that was part
0: of you as a person to just stick it out those 4 years Yeah i don't know i think i think uh i mean the the age old debate nature versus nurture um yeah I, it's hard to say i mean i think I think having um, you know, supportive parents and my I'm very similar to my dad in a lot of ways and very similar to my mom <laughs> in a lot of ways. And um, you know, that's something that yeah, I just never uh and even after the fact I sort of got myself in some sticky situations just because I'm like, Okay, I gotta see this through or I've committed to doing this and so I gotta do it. Uh, you know, never never been the person to like just drop something or drop somebody or uh, you know kind of bail out on on something, and yeah I, I think I mean some of that's got to be some genetics but and definitely just my parents uh, you know instilling that follow through and sort of commitment to to whatever it is I mean even reading books, I like have a hard time. Putting a book down that's bad because I'm like, well, I'm going to finish this thing. Like, I started it. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm getting a little bit better as I get older with knowing, like, okay, this is a waste of time. <laughs> like, just put the thing down. But that's, uh, yeah, just kind of kind of ingrained in there.
1: And then your senior year, just kind of a two parted question for you. Like, you know, you, you guys make a bit of a run, you get to the third round, I believe, right, in the tournament. Mm hmm. So just talk a little bit about that, what that experience was like, you know, the teams that you saw and kind of just the chaos of I've always wondered what the chaos of like after getting that win and then like you go, you know, and then you get the second win. So then you go back home for a few days and then you wait for your third round game. And then when are you starting to think or is someone coming to you saying, hey, you know, you need to start to think about moving on and playing professionally and just so it's kind of a two parter there
0: yeah i mean the tournament experience is is a trip that's i think probably the f- the first time and the closest you get to feeling like a pro but even a pro kind of on a different level in college because you know the first rounds two games you know you leave campus and usually you're in a private jet at least in pittsburgh like we would because there's like all the cheerleaders the band like you know there's 60 people that are traveling as a team so they would rent this big you know big jumbo jet and we'd all load up together and fly to whatever site city um and then you know it's weird like the tournament depending on your seed you get a better hotel so if you're like the top one or two or three seed you get a you're at like the Ritz or you know the the Hilton are you and then if- yeah. Yeah. That's just how it is. And then like, if you're the 16 scene, you're at the motel eight, <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. And that, but that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, we fly to wherever and we're staying in these, you know, five star, super fancy hotel. The media stuff is a total circus. You have to do like a, you know, a media practice. And there's at least in the second round, there's like 5,000 people because it's an open practice and so you got just 5,000 people that are in this whole city that come and watch you like do a bunch of dunks and shoot around and uh, like do a three-man weave because so show off, you know, who can dunk or whatever. And then, you know, just huge media scrums and police escorts. So like I remember being in Boston and we got, you know, I don't know, 12 motorcycle cops stopping bombing ahead stopping all the cars at every intersection and we're just flying in our bus and uh rolling into boston gardens and like it's all super crazy and over the top and then especially like so then if you win the first couple you know that's on a monday sunday monday you come back to campus for two days basically and uh, everybody on campus is like, oh, man, where to go, guys. You know, you're like total rock star on campus. You kind of go to class, but you're obviously pretty distracted and you know, try to fit in whatever you're going to fit in and just kind of ride this high life. And, and then you're also getting per diem, like in the tournament, you're getting like 120 bucks a day or something crazy like that. or I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's like you got all this cash in your pocket because you get per diem for each day that you're in the tournament. And uh, even though they're paying for everything. Um, <laughs> and so you got, you know, you got a bunch of cash. Everybody's just like, you know, super all into March Madness and thinking you're the man. And and then, yeah, you're, you're on campus for a couple of days and it's like, okay, next round. And you get back in a jumbo jet and <laughs> go to somewhere else. And we never made it past the Sweet 16. But, you know, even the Sweet 16 is like everything just sort of ramps up each weekend as far as fans and media coverage. and um just the buzz
1: sweet 16 you're
0: at least getting to the elite eight by the end of that weekend right so there's a bunch of people there for for the weekend so it's a it's a pretty insane that whole you know trip was was pretty crazy and and despite it being
1: off you you mm -hmm. you know reading about you you know you were like an all all academic and stuff so you took school seriously did you find that did you find it challenging or were your, were your profs pretty like, did they want to work with you or were you just kind of dedicated to school as well and disciplined enough to get it done on the road as well?
0: Yeah. You know what? I mean, <laughs> I don't want to uh, knock the American school system too much or anything, but <laughs> I didn't find a uh, school super challenging. Fair enough. Like, there was, yeah. there was challenging parts of school. Mm-hmm. And I know this from the recruiting process that like our public school in Canada is, way harder than the vast majority of school in the states and so i you know i had like a 73 average at kits so kind of just barely a b student and you know i didn't do great on my sats and all the schools that were recruiting me were like oh i don't know you know you only got a 73 because their percentages are different and so like Mm -hmm. a 73 is like a c and so they were really concerned about my academics and pittsburgh was it's kind of less so because you know they're they're not i mean it's an academic school but they're not like super high end it was kind of fine like i just had good enough grades to get by and then i got there and it's like you know the first year you got study hall and you got an academic counselor and they make sure you you know you got to check in study hall every week for a certain amount of hours and then if you maintain a grade point then they just leave you alone and i was like the lowest maintenance guy on the team and you know i went to class and i'm not stupid or anything but i certainly you know the the biggest thing was time management and that was you know still the the biggest thing that i had to learn was like okay i got two hours before i got to be a practice so i have to do whatever it is i got to do for my classes or um you know we're going on the road so better make sure i do this or whatever and and they're really good at supporting you with you know any tutors and making sure you got a hand in your syllabi and okay you got this test coming up are you prepared and you know they really walk you through it and you know the teachers were I know there there's teachers out there that were not supportive at all but any of my teachers were were totally understanding and would say okay yeah you got this coming up or you're going to be missing these classes you know I'll give you an extra you know few days on your paper or we can do the test beforehand whatever like they were they were accommodating and understood um you know the situation so that was that was lucky but I uh yeah I can't say that I was like buckled down you know nose <laughs> to the grindstone every day to get on the academic honor roll or anything like i went to <laughs> class that was a big one <laughs> and i, I usually <laughs> took notes and uh i was way like, ahead of everybody else hey <laughs> i was pretty literate and could write a paper and like form sentences and stuff so i was kind of ahead of the game and <laughs> for a lot of athletes <laughs> if i'm being <laughs> perfectly honest <laughs> Love it. I had a teammate my freshman year ask if I was breathing underwater when I swam from like one end of the pool to the other underwater. And uh he was dead serious. He just didn't know how to swim and was asking if I was breathing underwater. And I was like, he had a college degree. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know.
1: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh I love it um when and so yeah when does when does looking to go overseas or start to you know the next level for you after after your time at pitt become a reality for you?
0: yeah, so I again, like Jamie Dixon became the head coach after my first year, mm-hmm. and he was you know he was pretty tapped in and pretty hip to the to the game and and they uh I mean, in a sort of classically american thing we're like oh well do you have a passport like do you got a european passport of some kind like you're canadian maybe you got a european passport (laughs) uh i did so it sort of helped uh, perpetuate their uh their beliefs but i uh you know again kind of lucky my dad well my dad came to canada when he was six from england but happened to be born in ireland because his dad was working there at the time so um that sort of, they were pushing, they sort of gave us the extra nudge or my dad, at least the extra nudge to apply for his Irish passport so that me and my sisters could all get Irish passports. And so he, you know, him and I think probably Simon too was, was sort of putting that, that uh seed in our, in our head to just be like, Hey, if you can get that passport, because that's going to help you a lot. Overseas, you know, if the MBA thing doesn't work out, then here's, uh, you know, that's going to help you make more money and get better jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think it was probably my junior year that I actually had got the passport. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it was kind of, you know, Jamie, uh, I was doing well enough on a on a big enough stage and with with big school that there was there's some recognition there and some. Some notice, and I mean, you don't really hear anything about overseas until you get an agent. So, I got connected with my agent through Leo Routins and the national team, um, and that that also helped too because I was playing on the national team every summer. And there's obviously a lot of the guys we were playing against; they don't do the you know American university thing. They're already playing like at eighteen, nineteen, twenty. They've played pro for a couple of years and whatever country they're in, you know. So there there was some. Some buzz from the Tournament of the Americas, and you know the scouts. Scouts there, they they get a bit of a get some exposure um, through that that channel. And then you know, once I once I finished playing, and we lost that final game against UCLA, um, then I I signed with an agent pretty quick and started that process. And he you know shot me around, got my first contract and stuff. But
1: did you ever get a did you ever get a sniff towards the NBA, or was it just like hey? Europe's probably my best path and let's do the best I can that way.
0: Yeah, I actually I went after college I went and um trained in Vegas for about 6 weeks mm-hmm. at the Joe Abunasar uh facility there. And I worked out for about 8 or 9 uh NBA teams and uh my other twist of fate in the wrong direction story was um Seattle still had a team. So I I traveled to Seattle and did a workout for the Sonics and had a really good workout. They had a late first round pick. I met with the GM after the workout and he was like, just like, oh man, I'm blown away. I didn't know you could do all this. You know, you could do, we knew you were pretty skilled, but man, you were, you know, killing it out there. We're like super excited about you. We got a late first round pick, which would be great. You know, I met Ray Allen in the locker room before my workout and, you know, I was like, okay, Sonic's like, sweet, this is three hours away. Um, He was like, yeah, he's like, yeah, this is great. He's like, the only thing, we're just not really sure what's going to happen. They're making a decision on the stadium and if they're going to move the team the next day and the gm of the sonics was best friends with my agent through you know the scene was like you know new. so my agent called me and he's like oh man leave on this is awesome man my, my, my best friends with gm you know he's making the decisions they really like you they're super excited and then the uh the next day they move the team and fire the whole staff oh my god are you serious yeah. So the day after my workout, they made the decision, and the city was like, "Well, no, we're not footing the bill for this new stadium." And uh, the owner was like, "Yeah, okay, fine. We're leaving. We got the next. We got this team lined up that they're going to build us a stadium and uh, fire us all the staff, the GM, everybody gone." <laughs> so that was kind of so like you, say, you don't cheer for OKC at any point. yeah yeah. It yeah. was kind of like. Oh, okay well i guess that's not happening and um yeah and then i ended up i played for the jazz in summer league and you know did pretty well like spent the week or whatever 10 days with with the jazz and then uh yeah between my agent and i it was kind of like well we could take our chances and you know go to a training camp or whatever or like you know we got this six-figure contract in greece for a couple years that's like good money and you know just take that and kind of follow that path so that was that was where where i ended up going and i was never like super obsessed with the nba dream you know it would have been hmm. would have been nice and again it's kind of one of those so many different factors and i played against enough nba guys to know that you know give or take a, a break here and there like i could have been a you know eighth or tenth man on the bench and you know been yeah. fine and played in the nba but just never you know never really uh, um you know fell fell in that direction for various reasons
1: yeah i was just finished the nick nurse book as a really good read but um Mm. you know he kind of he's been coached all over the friggin' world right and he talks Mm -hmm. about that like the whatever there's 240 dudes in the league and it's like you're fooling yourself if you don't think the next 300 guys couldn't take the bottom 120 jobs. You know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. the, 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 thin line is like so tight and it's, there's so many different things that have to fall in line for those guys that are those role players. And, and, you know, to be honest, maybe, you know, your bottom guy on the NBA bench and it's like, you're just surviving every year. You don't know where you're going to be, where that paycheck's coming from, right? It, you know. Yeah, there's. Over, go to Europe, see see the globe, and you know, six figures is no joke. You you know, you get treated like royalty. I'm sure in some places, depending where you are, and have a great experience, right?
0: Yeah, and you actually get to play. I mean, there's there's totally an argument to be said. Um, you know, and if you're making, uh, you know, if you're kind of mid. To high level Europe, you're making the same as league minimum. Like you know, they're paying for your mm. car and your house, and it's tax free. And so, when you do the math, you know, at least when I was playing, I think league minimum was four sixty or something. So you cut that pretty much in half, and throw a car payments and a you know a couple thousand bucks a month for an apartment, and you know, and you're sitting on the bench, you don't play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, or you could be like the man on a team, and you're making the same money and. You know, it's like obviously the NBA is is kind of the pinnacle, and would have been amazing to to sort of spend some time there and and uh, you know just sort of see where you where you stand and get to experience that because that's a, a you know a totally different thing than than playing in Europe, but certainly not. A, I don't hang my head about it or anything.
1: For sure, you got any? Uh, what's like your best or craziest you know overseas kind of story? And um, we had um, Carl English on the la he's our previous guest, talking about one of the places they played in. And, you know, they were throwing cups of like piss at the, at the players, right? <laughs> so, you know, what, what were some of the goods and bads of being overseas? And, um, you know, you seem like just by listening to you talk, you're very cultured, right? So I'm sure you probably love being there and trying different foods and seeing different things. And did you enjoy the experience?
0: I loved it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's some sacrifices to make, but I uh yeah, I had a great time. Um I still miss Spain particularly. Mm-hmm. Spain uh, you know, was pulling on my heartstrings. I, I was there and I I learned Spanish and was totally like just felt like a Spaniard and was going to the market and you know, it was like uh you know, I really connected with the Spanish culture in a lot of ways and yeah, You know, it sort of lined up with my, uh, you know, my, my personality that laid back West coast thing was, is very uh, Spanish in a lot of ways and just great food. And, you know, obviously nothing's perfect or it's not, it's not all perfect in that country, but they got a lot of really great, you know, lifestyle habits and, and things that I, yeah, really miss and risk miss speaking the language and just being being there and uh yeah my crazy crazy overseas story um Greece was pretty bonkers um (laughs) a lot of the time (laughs) we uh one of the one time we had a home game and there was a brawl broke out in the stands before the game even started and I was hurt so I kind of was like getting treatment and came out in my street clothes and guys were busting the plastic seats off the sort of concrete that they they bolt the plastic seats down under the concrete and they were kicking them and breaking them off and throwing them at each other and one guy actually smashed the seat over a dude's head and went right through the seat and so he had this jagged plastic seat around his neck and his like (laughs) foreheads bleeding and the guy who did it was like Oh shit, I kind of like backed off and left him alone. And this was like, you know, then our captain's getting on the microphone, trying to, hey, everybody, like, relax. Oh, we haven't even played yet. And, you know, it was just like 40 hooligans from the other team that showed up to kick up dust and <laughs> cause a ruckus. And, um, so that was pretty wild. And then we had one of the, you know, it was kind of fun in the crazy sense, was we were playing a, a game, uh, Against Ike in Athens, and Athens was cool because there's when I was there, there were seven teams in Athens that were all in the A1 in the first division. Oh wow! Um, just because you know this country is pretty small, and so you'd have like there's two two teams in Saloniki in the north, uh, one team kind of in between, one team on the island, and then seven teams in Athens. So you would sometimes you just wouldn't even your road game would be like a thirty or forty minute drive across town, um, and some pretty you know heated rivalries it's kind of like if you were in vancouver there'd be like a pro team in surrey a pro team in richmond one in point gray you know one in east van one in the north shore and you'd all just play each other um yeah. so and there it's their their old clubs and old neighborhoods and a lot of pretty deep-seated uh action yeah, around their around their teams and so we played in this it was a tiny you know grungy little gym 2500 seat thing and there's like a six foot concrete wall that's you know about six feet off the sideline all the way around so you're kind of playing in a pit and they have the soccer style like plexiglass rounded plexiglass thing over the bench so that the people behind you can't like bean you with stuff or spit on you or whatever and uh it was a really close game back and forth and we uh i think our guy got fouled with you know like not much time left on the clock down by two and somebody had a laser pointer and was pointing it in his eyes while he's shooting his free throws to tie the game to go into overtime and uh he hit both free throws and then kind of gave the the greek version of the middle finger to the crowd (laughs) uh, which was you know a little unwise in hindsight and so 2500 people just fucking went nuts and started throwing like money and water bottles and batteries. And we're like, it's on YouTube. It's really funny to watch. And we're like in the court, I'm on the court and we're dodging stuff all like trying to run back under our little plexiglass, you know, protection zone here. And so they're going nuts, you know, it's all smoky. They've been lighting torches and smoking and flares and they're firing batteries and coins at us and stuff like that. And so we all run, under the plexiglass thing and are kind of like ducking and dodging and they you know they get on the mic and they try to calm everybody down and there's water and beer and stuff all over the court and so it takes them five minutes to clean everything up and then they brought out uh essentially riot cops that they had there or like they were outside so guys roll into the court with full shield shin pads like face mask um batons and they lined the court so there was basically no sideline or baseline it was just riot cops (laughs) (laughs) and we uh we tied the game so we had to play overtime so they you know cue the clock for a five minute overtime by the time they get all the lighters and stuff off the court and then there's like i remember inbounding like from the sideline and had to kind of shimmy two riot cops out of the way and get their shield so i could actually be out of bounds to pass the ball in (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you know, it's just super loud, it's smoky and dingy and like, you know, it's a relatively small arena that's just Mm -hmm. vibrating, you know, going totally nuts. And uh yeah, we ended up winning the game at the buzzer, the same guy who was, you know, flipping everybody off. Like we kinda were down one and he got a layup to win it. But he just scored the layup and we all just turned around and sprinted for the tunnel. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, just didn't wait for anything it was like as soon as he scored he just like kept his pace going and we all followed him coaches <laughs> and somebody like threw a brick at him uh, running into the tunnel and you know same like we were just getting spit on and stuff thrown at us and we just like beeline into the locker room and then uh we had to wait for like two hours in the locker room before the streets were cleared so we could get out of there um, because it's just they would like, attack
1: the bus or whatever, probably. Right? Yeah,
0: they would have they would have gone after the bus, so that was like, you know, we just had to hunker down in the in the stadium in the locker room, and it's like you know you're in this kind of tight small neighborhood uh, with a bunch of big apartment buildings and stuff, so it's not like a you know big open getaway or anything. Yeah yeah i can't i can't remember if they like brought us food or what but we just like we're like yeah oh, we just have to sit here the, like the streets are packed the cops can't clear the hooligans and so we just gotta wait until they like it's safe to go home <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool we had a not quite as crazy but uh similarly ruckus uh game in uh turkey which is also pretty cool it's like yeah. less violent but uh <laughs> Similarly, <laughs> so like people hanging from the rafters and light and flares and that oh stuff is pretty, God. pretty sweet. That's
1: awesome. I love it, yeah. man. And then like, as you move forward, you're doing your thing through Europe. You play for a bunch of different teams and is it the body that starts to tell you to time to slow it down or is it the mind that's starting to tell you or the heart? Like what, where, when do you start to just go, you know what, It's I'd like to get back home and, and do something different.
0: Yeah, for me, it was more the mind. Um, I just I didn't enjoy suffering as much. <laughs> when I was young, and it's one of those odd, kind of innate things that when I was younger and when I was playing, I just learned to love like training and working out and like suffering. <laughs> I was—I always kind of prided myself on being in good shape, and especially for big like running sprints and stuff where I could just dig deep and I call—I it I'd just called it machine mode where I kind of eyes would light up and you just get into that state where you want to just keep going and crush <laughs> whoever's around you, kind of thing. And I used to just <laughs> love that and um, <laughs> practice and whatever was all great. And then you know the last couple of years, I yeah, just kind of was like took more and more mental effort to like really be motivated and the competitive drive kind of petered out a bit and was kind of like okay oh well, what's what am i really doing this for what's what are the stakes or whatever you know it was yeah. it just kind of and get and all the grind stuff you know i still love games and love winning but the day to day get up and go to practice and the traveling and you know just putting in the time that that became more challenging um for sure and then i uh was essentially forced to retire when my son got sick um mm-hmm. and it it uh you know obviously really unfortunate circumstance but was kind of time you know like i probably would have played another year or two just to bank some cash and kind of too hard to too hard to say no i got my biggest contract offer after i retired <laughs> i couldn't go <laughs> play so it was kind of like I definitely woulda you know had to say yes to that if there was no other reason not to yeah um so uh yeah and it was it was fine, I mean, I was pretty preoccupied mentally in a lot of ways, but i um yeah it was it felt felt like time, and yeah for the most enough. part, you know yeah. like i said i i probably would have liked to squeak out another another year or two, but for the most part, I was ready to, yeah, just do, do new stuff, a lot of life. I, was, I felt lucky to be like 32 or whenever I retired and just be like, okay, now I get to start fresh and yeah. do something totally yeah, different sure. and cool. do whatever I want. Yep.
1: And <laughs> I know I read a couple of stories about your son and, you know, followed that. And how, how's that? Is he doing okay now and things have sort of leveled off or is that still a challenge for you guys?
0: Yeah, he's doing great. Um, yeah. He, uh, every three or four months, he gets an MRI just to make sure nothing's changed. Yeah, um, but he, you know, last year, is that last winter? Yeah, last winter, winter before last, had a a bit of a relapse. So I kind of got uprooted and spent six months in Toronto, uh, where he was getting treatment and uh, had another surgery and did uh 6 weeks of radiation and a bunch of stuff like that and has been clear since then and yeah he's uh he's like the the guiding light has been the the silver lining which uh I often mentioned you know it's like pretty yeah pretty wild uh circumstances and I I often find I don't even I have to kind of step out once in a while to really absorb it all because you just get caught up in day to day and making sure he's fed and healthy. And he, you know, through the worst of it, has never, you know, never really faltered and has a really amazing, like infectious, huge personality and, you know, aura about him where he, He just kind of captivates almost everybody he meets and (laughs) that that's never changed like since he was a baby and all through his stuff it was like he's just super captivating and you know is still a kid and challenging and (laughs) all those things it's like (laughs) you know still have to deal with all that stuff and you know it's amazing how quick you sort of forget about the big picture when you're just got to Get him to eat some food and like <laughs> get his pajamas on and go to bed and you know, that that yeah. kind of stuff. But for sure. It's been a you know also a twist of fate that has led me into some, you know, meeting my girlfriend and who's amazing and our daughter and uh, you know, getting me back home and yeah. back into sort of Vancouver world and yeah, changing obviously. Totally changing my life course dramatically and quickly, but in a in a great way. And he's he's doing awesome and that's good. It's crazy how resilient
1: kids are too. Hey, like they're so much more resilient than we are.
0: Yeah, like he, you know, he was <laughs> ten months old when he first had it, and even now at six kind of doesn't really you know, it won't be till he's older where he'll be like, Oh yeah, shit. I had brain cancer and like had two surgeries and all this yeah. stuff that like you know he just doesn't he just it's day-to-day you know it's just like okay yeah getting up we're doing this we're like taking the subway the ttc to go to sick kids and like see my doctors and it's whatever you know it's just like that's just life and yes yeah. for the, you know typically with the, the adults or the the older people or like the ones that are fretting over stuff and you know i think that that's he's really helped I mean, I, I uh, before he was around was sort of intrigued by the the power of now stuff and being in the moment, and also just through basketball have developed a certain amount of uh, you know detachment and not in a bad way, but a certain amount of presence. Uh, just having to miss things and be away from family, and you know just just be where you are. Basketball as well is a great teacher for that kind of mm-hmm. stuff if you let it teach you, <laughs> and. uh so this was yeah that just kind of steroids and kids are the best the best teachers of that you know they'll hate you one minute for you know not giving them a treat and then they're you know hugging you the next it's like just be <laughs> be where you are you know
1: yeah <laughs> Yeah, we went to it's Remembrance Day today when we're recording here, and I brought my son. He's four. Brought him to the the school because no one's here, so we just open the equipment room and just run around. Right, so we had a great two hours. And I don't know. I told him no for something, and next thing you know, he says like, "I want a better dad." Like, okay, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, just like ten minutes ago, I was the greatest dad in the world. Yeah, yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. And it's they're such good teachers for all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just like just living
1: power of now man robbie sacre showed out that book too as well we had rob on the on the show and oh yeah uh,
0: nice yeah
1: he he said that uh book changed his life actually so
0: i uh that, yeah it, it definitely like pushed me in a direction when i was playing in greece i came across it um after like you know spending a year and a bit with a you know heartbreak and <laughs> whatever was starting to go through the same thing again i'm just like this is brutal what am i doing to myself and then i stumbled across that book and yeah totally yeah helped shape my philosophy so ecker totally well i've
1: changed i've created a goal i'm like i'm a terrible reader and so my goal is as a book a month now so i guess right. i'm uh, i just finished the nick nurse one i'm gonna try to do another one i got the three ring circus about the lakers and then I, like, maybe that'll be my next one i'll order that one up and get through that because uh two guys recommend it so it's got to be done it's
0: and it's not it's it's one of the you know most simple but difficult uh right you know philosophies it's like just be be here now and i mean the book the book is cool because he sort of breaks down all the the ego piece and how the ego manifests itself in our day-to-day in our psyche and our thought processes and how we, why we do things to satisfy our ego even if they're painful and all that kind of stuff yeah. is is really interesting so i yeah, definitely, definitely cool. recommend it
1: totally appreciate your time we got you know 15-20 minutes left i just there's before we get to what we call the lightning round is like the real important questions of the podcast yeah, um, yeah. we did a little bit of research you know we look into things here is it You know, all your time with the national team must have been like super special. We've had the fortune of interviewing many people who've been able to, you know, rep the rep the leaf and wear the jersey. But is Mm -hmm. it true that you dropped forty and twelve on the
0: U.S. in overtime? Forty and twelve—that was the game of my career. Yeah, uh, who was on that U.S. team? JJ Redick, Taj Gray, Big Baby, uh, Alan Ray. Who else did they have? They had some they were crushing everybody it was a the classic cinderella story it was great we we were we finished that tournament three and five with a bronze medal yeah and the u.s was the u.s was seven and one when fifth place (laughs) (laughs) so we won every game that we needed to to get a bronze so we were like right. one in 5 or whatever it was like one in you know four in the pool play we won our last game to just to be the bottom seed and then we yeah. came out of there in the quarterfinals to play the US and um yeah I was you know I spent my career trying to chase chase that mindset of I just got in the zone I had 20 in the first half and at halftime I said okay hey guys like be ready they're going to be doubling and they're going to you know be knuckling down on me so be ready to shoot and there was a couple plays where you know i kick out for threes guys hit shots and then i had 20 in this just, you just gotta wait buddy um 20 in the second half and we won in overtime and upset them and uh then we lost the semifinal game and then won the consolation game for bronze yeah cool and uh yeah it was amazing i just like just hit the zone everything was working i had the you know shimmy fadeaways gone and i couldn't shoot free throws i was i was six for 12 or something from the free throw line that was like the one hitch <laughs> had like 45 and 12 <laughs> yeah i could have yeah that was all so good yeah man that was that was cool
1: What do you think in your opinion is the greatest chip on earth? Bag Ooh, of chip.
0: The the greatest bag of chips. I am a sucker for Miss Vicky's original. Ooh. The kind of is that like the the red bag? The red bag, yeah. just yes. salt and oil. I mean, yeah. I I I like my flavored chips, but if I had to pick one that I could only eat, it would be it would be Miss Vicky's original, I think. I mean, I, there were some good chips in Spain, too, that I really dug. But that one, just, you know, at the end of a, a workday, yeah. salt and oil, hard to beat.
1: You got it. <laughs> Who's the greatest player you've ever played against?
0: Or players? Um, that is a tough one. I played against a dream team, so... <laughs> <laughs> That was like Kobe, LeBron, Melo, Jason Kidd, uh, Dwight Howard, Amari Stoudemire. Um, So I I try to answer that question. The hardest person I had to guard was probably Dirk Nowitzki. And we played them quite a few times with the – well, I don't know, four or five times, something like that. I played against him with the national team. And uh, he was never in great shape when we played them which was good i usually did fairly well but he was just savvy you couldn't you couldn't have a lapse for half a second he was making you pay um so he and and carmelo was pretty tough to guard fair enough
1: yeah
0: <laughs> love it
1: if you're jumping in the car tomorrow going to, you know you're going to do some landscaping or whatever you got to do what's spinning on the uh, apple music or the the spotify what are you listening to
0: Oh, man, I, um, soul is probably my go-to. Okay.
1: Hit hit us with an artist. Hit us with with a couple artists.
0: Um, all the classics, man. Uh, I, uh, you know, Al Green, um, Charles Bradley is not really a classic, but, you know, that, that era, Sam Cooke, um, Otis Redding. I'm a big fan of Otis Redding. Um, so you yeah. said you can play Can you sing too? I can sing a little bit I got, a, I got an EP on iTunes <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right you do Is <laughs> that a plug? There we go Corbin the producer we'll, get, <clears throat> we'll just pause for a sec here We'll get you singing in the background right now When this comes out
0: But I you With all So don't be mad Maybe we could get a, maybe we get a, what's a, what, like a, is it a duet? Him and Maeve? Right? Uh, yeah. a, little, a little collab? A little a online collaboration. Yeah, I, I uh, wrote and played songs when I, I mean, I, I don't, I haven't written in a while, but when I was overseas, I would, I always had a piano in my house and sit down and taught myself how to sing. Awesome. I'm not amazing <laughs> or anything, but
1: <laughs> it's all good. It's a talent that not many have. It's awesome. Um, yeah. Who has been the most important person or people in your life? Oh,
0: my probably my parents and my kids. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know, consistently, anyways. And uh, yeah, we know we talked about Simon Dykstra and definitely had some some coaches that have that have really helped me a lot. But
1: in your mind.
0: Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Who? So this I thought about this one beforehand. I will preface my answer with saying uh, <laughs> that I I'm a bigger Jordan fan than LeBron, but I think LeBron is is the goat, and I I can't really speak on any of the older you know WILTs and right um, those guys that. I just never saw play really in such a different era that I, I don't love playing the comparison game, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, I am the most, I'm, I'm really amazed at LeBron's consistency and his ability to perform over time. People, people kind of overlook, they always want to talk about championships and stats and stuff, but the fact that he's been just doing everything he needs to do to be in crazy physical condition and, Perform under pressure essentially every time for twenty years is really crazy. People don't realize how hard it is to be the man night in and night out like forever. Jordan did it a lot, and but for like ten or eleven years, you know. And yeah, LeBron's sure. on, and he was at, when he was like fifteen. He was had that expectation, and uh, yeah, pretty remarkable. Uh, for him to just like keep producing, fair enough, and and just well rounded, you know, he's he's not just scoring; he's kind of like adapts to the situation and does what he needs to do. So I, uh yeah, I I didn't start off a LeBron fan, but I think he's he's got to take the take the title for whatever it's worth. Jordan's like still the- way smoother and stylish, but.
1: You're like the unicorn. You're like a Jordan fan, but it will it say that LeBron is better is the goat. Like that's wow.
0: Yeah, I don't. I I mean, I don't like that. What's the comparison? Is the killer of joy, as they say? Like uh, I, you know, I don't like. Typically, don't like playing that game. And I'm that's kind of not Jordan, for sure. He's he's amazing and so smooth and he's like poetry. Uh, Yeah, totally different. So elegant yeah. and amazing um and groundbreaking, but just from a from a sheer production and consistency and performance under pressure, I think you're it's hard to argue against LeBron.
1: We'll we'll let we'll accept that answer. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Two more questions. Uh for real though. You know you've got two kids. You probably see in the macaroni game quite often. What is your thoughts about macaroni and ketchup on macaroni?
0: Oh, man, I've been a staunch supporter of ketchup and any noodle since I can remember. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I don't even get the counter argument on that one. I mean, sure, like tomato sauce is better and, you know, it's nice to make a good tomato sauce, but that's my my kids eat spicy like whatever, macaroni and ketchup and once in a while I like doing the old school like just Parmesan and ketchup and noodles and I used to eat a box of K D with ketchup as my like after school snack when I was growing. I was just like get the carbs in ya. <laughs> there you go. There you go.
1: <laughs> Amazing. This has been great, man, and you know, shout out to Bal Dillon for you know connecting us and getting us. I know I've met you a couple of times around the around the basketball scene, but uh, it's a pleasure to kind of just hear more about you and get to know you. So we we really do appreciate it. But the final question before you go is, if you could do it all again,
0: you would? Absolutely, absolutely. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't change much. I uh, I sort of grapple a little bit with, you know, being a little bit more all in on the basketball front because i always you know try to maintain balance and i think you know didn't quite achieve my you know shall we call it full potential as a basketball player um but i i wouldn't have changed that for for the life experiences and you know other things that i was doing and sacrifices i didn't have to make despite making a lot to uh to kind of roll on the journey that I've been on. So I got, I got no regrets.
1: Right on, man. That's great reflection. Any last shout outs, you know, the old kids, boys or someone out there that you feel like you've left out before you uh, get on your way and try to get the wee man uh, off to bed?
0: Uh, I don't think so. I think, um, yeah, man, lots of, lots of great support. All my, all my friends, I could shout out my friends, and family in the hood that have kept me grounded through it all too i didn't talk too much about them but i was always always great i would go off and be a, a quote unquote superstar and come back to east Van, and they'd all just scoff at me and treat me like i was the same dude i was because i was and that was great that always kept me grounded and same with my family so i appreciate all those guys that i'm still friends with since i was five
1: <laughs> amazing amazing love love how your hoops journey has come full circle and again we appreciate you being with us um phenomenal episode one of the best hoopers bc's produced um and and a canadian legend as well so thanks for being with us shout out to our sponsors good lad and parkside don't forget like and subscribe to the podcast and we will see you on the next episode